Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel within the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Today on the podcast, I talk with Dr. Calvin Shermerhorn, professor in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State University. Dr. Shermerhorn is here today to discuss his recently published book by our friends at Cambridge University Press entitled Unrecorded Soil, A History of United States Slavery. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. And, you know, it's a pleasure, uh, to say the least, to have you on the program today for, uh, for you to talk about Unrecredited Soil. It was a extremely uh, uh, greatly written book, while also being one that, um, like, the, like the book is, it's a, a synthesis. And so it in- included all the great new work that's being done on on slavery broadly, but especially, um, obviously, um, on the, on United States slavery. And so, um, and I also appreciate you uh, taking the time out at the beginning of the semester to chat with us today. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the book was, yeah, go ahead, please. No, no, I, I was just going to say, um, you know, just before we get started on it, and it already sounds like you were on that wavelength anyway, um, can you talk to us about what uh, brought you to writing this book? Yes, thanks for the question. Um, I I teach um, African-American history. I teach the history of slavery and American and Atlantic and global context. And one of the things that struck me was that most of the materials that we have on the subject are written through the eyes and through the perspectives of um, those whom we used to call slave owners, whom we now call enslavers. And one of the correctives, I thought, for this um, kind of pervasive way of approaching the subject was to look through the eyes, if and where and when possible, uh, uh, through the eyes of the, of the enslaved or those people who were at least sympathetic to those who were enslaved and to try and get their perspective and juxtapose it with uh, the broader you know, political economy of slavery and some of the other themes that are very important to contextualize those perspectives. Perfect. And um, with the with the actual title of uh, the book, A History of, of United States Slavery, um, you know, there, there's still a lot of discussion as to what actually slavery was. And, and obviously, a lot of times when you have discussions about this, and maybe you've had this even in some of your uh, college classrooms where people say, well, slavery has been around for you know, insert whatever gear, uh, thousands of years or whatever. So, so what was the difference between the slavery that was conducted, um, in, in the time, uh, of, you know, like the, the formation of the United States will say, so from like 1776 to 1865, right? What was the difference in chattel slavery as opposed to slavery that came prior to it? Yeah, fantastic question. 
slavery in the United States was the, uh, the, the most highly commercialized expression of an institution that has an ancient history. And what I mean by that is that um, enslaved people in the United States didn't just represent forced labor or labor um, value or labor power, but rather uh, a commoditization, a commercialization. Enslaved people represented cash flow. And anything with a cash flow can be commoditized, can be securitized. And so it was this radically commercialized expression of slavery. And so one of the, the what, what, is, what does that point to? That points to the fact that enslaved people were both capital and labor, and that they were assets as well as kind of, you know, people who were, who were forced to toil, forced to work for others without pay. This is the unrequited toil. The, the book's um, title actually comes from William Wells Brown's uh, narrative, his autobiography, in which he used that phrase of unrequited toil uh, to characterize the, the violence and exploitation of slavery. But, and, but this is the distinctive part of United States slavery. There are other contexts, there are other parts of United States slavery that make it distinctive as well. In contrast to, say, English or British colonial slavery in the West Indies or even um, British North America, enslavers had an outsized um, political influence in the United States Republic. So they weren't just kind of the colonial um, lobby or the sugar lobby um, that people like Eric Williams talks about in Capitalism and Slavery. Uh, but they were senators, they were presidents, uh, they were Supreme Court justices. And so when we look in that context, we can see that not only was this a highly commercialized version of slavery, but it was one that was exceedingly politically powerful. Now, that wasn't where it ended either, because these exceedingly politically powerful people wanted to expand, they wanted to scale up, they wanted to become wealthier, more powerful. And so uh, this also leads to another distinctive feature of United States slavery, which was that the confluence of uh, the exploitation, the violence against African-descended people, and the political power held by some very ambitious um, expanders, we'll we'll call them, um, made this a a dreadful um, proposition for Native Americans. American Indians, especially those in the Southeast, those confederations and nations like the Creeks or Muscogee Creeks, the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Seminole, who were forcibly removed and extirpated. So this brings me to the to the next kind of big part of the story, which is that slavery expanded rapidly. Uh, African-American slavery expanded rapidly. You have people like Frederick Douglass, who was born you know, two centuries ago, right, in 1818 or 1819. He, he was born at a time in which the, the frontier may have stopped uh, in, in the western hills, or at least at the Mississippi River. But by the time he came of age, and by the time his generation came of age in the 1830s and 1840s, uh, the frontier had expanded from the headwaters of the Chesapeake Bay to the bottom of the Brazos River all the way in Texas. And that meant that families were separated, that enslavers uh, very consciously and deliberately took young people of working age away from parents and grandparents, um, took babies away from mothers, as William Wells Brown testified. And so this enormous mobility, and combined with this geographic um, expansion, um, made, the, made United States slavery distinctive in the Atlantic world and perhaps on the globe. Thank you for that, uh, for that discussion, because I, I, I've, 
I come across many people who 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 you know are interested in the work that I do in slavery and and sometimes it's really hard to you know break down to them what the major differences between you know slavery uh, of maybe you know ancient Greece as opposed to excuse me as opposed to what it took to really found this country as well um, and 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 before we get into the book as well, something that I wrote down as you were just uh, delivering uh, um, your your last uh, thoughts was really about as someone who's written books, right? You know, on the back of your book, you know, you have that you have that you are uh, the author of the business of slavery and the rise of American capitalism, eighteen fifteen to eighteen sixty, and also the co-editor of Rambles of a Runaway. From Southern Slavery in 2012, an author of Money Over Mastery, Family Over Freedom, Slavery in the Antebellum Upper South, also a, a shameless plug to your other books. Um, what is, what was it, how, how was it different writing uh, unre- Unrequited Toil? How, how is the job of a historian writing a synthesis different than writing one of your other books that I just mentioned? Uh, because you know, the incorporation is, I'm sure, a lot different. Yes. Yeah. Good, good question. And mostly it's it's having to flatten a lot of uh, interesting details into um, kind of a, a narrative of each chapter. And what I mean by that is you take a, a, somebody who is as complex as Frederick Douglass or Harriet Jacobs or Sojourner Truth, and having to kind of use them as um, you, you know, use them as part of a of a larger story, and so you you lose a little bit of the distinctiveness. What's gained, I think, is that you can you know you can paint in broad brushstrokes. What was it about the landscape of sexual violence that was that, that united the experiences of uh, African descended people in Texas and North Carolina? You know, what was it about the financial chains of slavery um, that that um, made enslavers um, so wealthy and made made uh, slavery such an attractive financial venture. So the challenge, of course, was to write, um, you know, build some sophistication into that narrative, and kind of, you know, take all those, all that historiography, all the, you know, the the live discussions that you alluded to in the first part of our conversation, and incorporate them into the story. And so that that requires a, a little bit of craftsman, you know, crafts like work, um, and it's it's not easy to do. And then imagine an audience who maybe doesn't know a lot about the subject going in. That is someone who might approach this um, in a in an introductory cl- college class and say, "All right, how do I meet that imagined reader where she is?" and um, kind of work from there and work from there, work, work from that way, that way out to a reader and to try and not to include a lot of the jargon that is shorthand for a lot of complex ideas, but that doesn't come off as particularly meaningful to someone who's approaching this from the outside. Phenomenal, phenomenal. And, 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 you know, that, that's it. I think that's an important distinction um, really to make because, you know, when I, when I think about, you know, when I think about the work that we do as historians and I think about, you know, trying to write something, making sure that your argument is clear. Now, obviously, you know, that that should be already like thought about. But um, as I'm sure you've read uh, as many books as anybody, um, 
not everyone's arguments are necessarily the clearest. Um, so, so finding someone who, whose arguments are clear um, in, in, in that type of way, I think is important, um, especially when you try to think about how you can apply. And this will be one of my later questions down the line at the latter portion of the interview is how, you know, in, how you can incorporate your work into, um, into classrooms. But like I said, we'll, 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 we'll get there. Um, but uh, a next question for you, um, you kind of alluded to this before in, in, in how you organize the work, but, but can you talk to us about how you chose to organize this, uh, 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 the work as well? Because, um, you know, it, it's a li- correct me if I'm wrong, it's a little chronological mixed in with a lot of uh, thematic uh, uh, work as well. Yes. And this is the challenge, too, because if you write thematically, then you might you might mix mix up the chronology. And that that happens here, too. So what I try to do is to um, in 12 kind of sequential chapters, uh, look at what was happening first around the time of the revolution and wind up in in reconstruction, which is a huge part of the story. Um, Slavery didn't end in 1865. Right. Slavery was abolished in 1865 constitutionally, but we understand the 13th Amendment to have a, a loophole. That is, slavery is still permitted for the, um, as a punishment for a crime. So what I try to do in the space of those, uh, those eight decades or nine decades is to try to um, look, what was, look and see what was distinctive about each of those time periods. So in the, 18, in the 1790s, it wasn't very clear. It wasn't clear to the people at the time that um, the momentum of uh, colonial slavery would be sustained in the early republic. And there are people who are talking about abolition, um, not the abolition that you understand in the 1830s with the professional a- abolitionists, um, but just to, to they, they didn't expect it to that that slavery would become an empire of cotton. Um, and so each chapter kind of looks at a distinctive feature of a, of a particular time. But of course, it goes back and forth. For example, in the uh, chapter on geopolitics, of course, it's, it's about the politics of slavery and it has to go range back to the, the 18 teens or 20s and range forward to the eve of the Civil War. Um, things like life in the quotidian, Chapter six, um, you know, this this is not something that's distinctive in the 1840s where or the 1820s where some of this is placed. But, you know, this means the everyday life of of enslaved people. And so it goes back and forth. But I tried to balance that um, while also making sure that uh, think you know, categories like race were a big part of the story, because you cannot understand United States slavery without understanding um, anti-black racism that um People who had visible African descent were assumed to be enslaved, and this was the default setting in American law. And we can't understand American slavery without considerations of gender, uh, because the uh, the only people who are candidates for enslavement were the children of enslaved mothers. And so this was a, this is a very artificial um, construction on slavery, but it was one that seemed to be naturalized and normalized if we just look at um, kind of the old historiography that assumes that slavery would be perpetuated down a maternal line. And I also wanted to look at class, too, and that is that um, enslavers quite deliberately um, widened inequalities among all Americans. And they, they did this by shutting off avenues to um, diversification in slavery-intensive areas. 
And I didn't quite get to this in the book, but there's some new research um, by some very shrewd sociologists and other researchers who have laid down a map of the 1860 census and looked at those places where slavery was most intensive in 1860, and then laid down another map drawn from the 21st century that shows uh, places where Americans are the least upwardly mobile. And guess what? Um, you can you can spot it from space. You can look down, um, you know, at this map, and they overlap almost completely. There's some there's some. Uh, I've I've talked to some sociologists who are working on the the problem of credit in places uh, in especially in the American South. That is, the the most um, credit starved places are also those places where uh, slavery was most intensive in 1860. You look at things like union representation. And those places are the, you know, that they correspond. And so one of the, the challenges and one of the things that I may have left a little bit incomplete in the book, but is forecasted kind of in the, in the epilogue, is that slavery means a lot. Uh, the, the legacy of slavery is palpable in, in our, on our landscape today. And, and it is for many reasons. And uh, so, you know, trying to organize the book in, in order to, to make that, make that conclusion mean something was a little bit of a challenge. Yes. And, and it's one of those situations that I think that um, you did very well um, in, in the, in your text. And, and it's really one of those that it made me think about, um, you know, my, you know, being at the university of Delaware and having um, the history of, of capitalism being a very much uh, important, Peace to um, what they do, uh, what we do. You know, I, I only say they because I'm not, you know, I'm not a part of that program. I, I, I'm, I'm in the classes with the folks and such. Um, and so, like, you know, there's been such a such, you know, great work in the history of capitalism and slavery recently. So looking at uh, 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 Sven Becker's work and Baptist's work and and, and many others, um, along with Dr. Barry, who's done some work in that as well, obviously. And so, you know, we're, we're really in this kind of renaissance period, just in general within slavery scholarship, but also looking at capitalism and slavery. And so I was actually very interested to see how you took up the notion of, of, um, of, of labor and, and the, the differentiation of labor, because um, to add on to what else I do, I actually help run a project called the uh, Afro-Latin Experience Project with the uh, Great Smoky Mountains. National uh, Park on the North Carolina side, and we're looking at you know the history of African Americans in the Great Smoky Mountains, um, and, and looking at you know how they affected the environment, um, because you know where where was slavery most most taken right? It was in you know the it was in the environment. It was in in the quote unquote nature space where I interestingly enough you don't see a lot of African Americans, and yet our connection to this land is largely through a nature environmental base. Um, so I was very much interested to see how you took up the question of that. And, and especially in areas where slavery, like in the, um, in the American mountain South, like Dr. Dunaway said, um, you know, is very much important. So can you talk to us even a bit about kind of like how you took up the notion of a differentiation of labor and different, uh, um, uh, areas where enslavement was going on. 
So I think that's something that a lot of people are still a little very short on as far as their their knowledge of it. Oh yeah, this is a great question. So yeah, if you if you go ask the average person, okay, I'm saying slavery, what do you think of? They'll say probably something about cotton and long furrows and some you know white guy on a horse with a whip and a pistol. And that's all true. But as you point out, in the American Mountain South, as Wilma Dunaway and and many other and other scholars have said, this is not the case. And so we have a, a, an amazing variety of um, enslaved labor in the United States. And so I, I start with um, cotton, but I very quickly get to sugar, which is also very labor-intensive, deadly uh, work. And but there is there there's a lot that was outside of that frame as well. I mean, we're familiar with tobacco. Here's another commodity. So sugar, cotton, tobacco. We think about rice in the, the, the low country of South Carolina and Georgia. And these are all labor intensive agricultural commodities that were sold either domestically or abroad. But there is much more than enslaved people did. And so south of Maryland, most of the railroad track and many of the, the locomotives were staffed by enslaved people. Most of the railroad track in Virginia was was laid down, um, you know, ballast piled up, the beds um, graded, um, the wood cut, the, the tracks laid down and then maintained by enslaved people, sometimes in gangs of 100 or 200. In, in places like Richmond, Virginia, Petersburg, and elsewhere, there are factory workers who whose who you couldn't tell if you were at the factory door in the morning, you probably couldn't tell who was who was a wage worker and who was enslaved, um, because they kept hours and they 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 had production quotas. And yes, on the factory floor, you could tell because you'd see the whip and the lash and and violence just in you know as an endemic part of it. But that was a an. Uh, that was enslavers economizer. They economized with violence, and it wasn't that different on the factory floor than in a railroad camp. Um, inside uh, most m- wealthy middle-class homes, you find domestic labor. And here's a huge hidden workforce of predominantly females, but also children. There's also a lot of male cooks. And then in construction sites, in, in home building, Harriet Jacobs's father um, was... Uh, I, I don't know at what point he was free and what point he was enslaved, but um, he was a carpenter. As and and you looked at North Carolina, uh, Western North Carolina, you know, on the on the Atlantic side, you've got all kinds of um, forest and timber industries. You've got uh, transportation industries, wagoners, people who are on the waterways, people who are working out of sight. And, uh, you know, out of range of, of their putative owners, so much so that it, it, it kind of makes a mockery of any analysis of a master-slave relationship as if this is some sort of personal everyday interaction. Um, there is one record, I think it made it into the book, where um, a Virginia railroad company was so starved of workers, or actually it was a mining company. There are there coal mines outside of Richmond, and they had to go down to South Carolina to recruit enslaved laborers. And they had to, to give them steamship tickets to, so they could get back to their families for the customary Christmas time holiday. And so, you know, just the, the variety is dizzying. And then you have things like um, hiring out or wage, you know, uh, wages paid to an enslaver. Um, and then you've got l- slave labor brokers who are bringing the 
the the labor in the countryside to the city and and matching urban employers demands to you know the the I want to say the labor market, the slave labor market in the countryside. So yes, this there's there's another layer, several layers to it. Right, and, and I think about that so much because I think that one of the areas at which that I, I really want to get involved in more and more, and uh, want to give a shout out to uh, uh, Dr. Carrie Lee Merritt as well for helping me get involved in this over the summer. And also uh, throughout uh, meeting folks at uh, at the Southern uh, this past year, because I, I really got really interested in the notion of labor and and and, and thinking about it. Um, and this was even in a way that I didn't even think about necessarily after, or I haven't even finished Black Reconstruction because we all know how long that daggum book is. But um, but 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 <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, but just really thinking about this notion of labor too, because. I think that we're so infatuated with, and, and maybe infatuated isn't the right word, but most people, like you said before, only know uh, enslaved labor through a very, very sh- uh, small window. Like my family, to give an example, uh, on my daddy's side, we're from uh, we're from the Low Country in Beaufort, South Carolina, and so you know that's rice, that's indigo, um, and so we're dealing with waterways as well. But then um, on my de- on my mom's side, um, you know, you have family who are also from the Piedmont area um, in, in the Sumter, South Carolina area, and then also on the on the Cape Fear region in North Carolina. So so all of these I think about and how not only that people took up space, but also what were they doing? And also in historical time, like like to give an example, I was just thinking about this a couple of days ago. What the hell were my family doing during the American Revolution? What were they? What, were, what was their life like? Were, were they even there? And you know, that's the notion of African American life of you know not necessarily always knowing whether or not your people are even there. But if they were, what were they doing? And what kind of experiences? Whether right? You know, so so I think it's it's to me always goes back to uh, um, the 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 labor aspect of it as well. Hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, and this shapes, you know, like you say, it shapes mobility, it shapes um, human relationships too. And, and also, you know, intends to, to shape and disrupt family life and the, the transmission of ancestral wisdom and learning and kind of the social capital as well. Um, mm-hmm. Fascinating. Right. And, and, and um, I also think about when, when, when you talk about this as well, I also think about, you know, there, there's been a long running discussion um, about how foundational um, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you had already mentioned this, my, my apologies if you already did, but, you know, I, I you know, there, there's this running um, discussion about how foundational American slavery um, was to the foundation of American capitalism. Um, because I, I always feel like that's a discussion that's running through so many graduate seminars and, and such, and I'm sure in professional circles, uh, the like, but um, can you talk to us about that discussion as well? And kind of maybe how your book uh, 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 lands on, on that particular discussion too, if you don't mind. 
Yeah, so this is a this is a thorny thicket for anybody who's wading into it kind of from the outside. And so I usually think about capitalism the way that I think about religion and hear me out. Um, and that is that um, you have certain religious or- orthodoxies and certain and and you'll say, well, this is the true religion and this is not the true religion. And so I think we have people who look at capitalism in a certain way. That is, uh, if you're if you're an orthodox Marxism, you have to think about something that sorry, an orthodox Marxist, you have to think about capitalism in terms of labor contracts and coercions and owners of the means of production. And, and you've got, you know, freedom of, uh, you know, freedom of contract, freedom of labor, um, you know, that you've got certain elements to it. Um, I tend to think about capitalism as a a highly articulated system of trade and exchange. Uh, And so that, that kind of opens it up a little bit. I guess that's my orthodoxy. And so where I come at it is that if you look at commercial agriculture, for example, or fa- you know, tobacco factories or railroad enterprises, right? These are capitalist enterprises. To the extent they're using enslaved people, that doesn't that doesn't make them non-capitalist. The use the use of enslaved labor does not, you know, does not um, d- prevent them from being capitalist enterprises. Um, and what some of the uh, Historians of, of this process, including Ed Baptist and Sven Beckert and Dinah Ramey Berry, have have uh, argued is that the productive energies of enslaved people supported added value and uh, and and increased the margins of capitalists who are investing in these enterprises. And it's kind of a um, there, there's kind of a lag. There's um, a lingering kind of um, doubt from the 1970s when scholars were contending that no, slavery was really a, a social system. Yes, it was an exploitative social system, but it wasn't uh, It wasn't tied to the capitalist system. Uh, remember the famous quote from Elizabeth Fox Genovese and Eugene Genovese that um, slavery, plantation slavery was in, but not of the world uh, of, of modern capitalism. And so I, I I just I don't see that as as um, there's there's not a there's not a there's not a boundary between um, capitalism and slavery, and in fact, if you look at things like these financial chains, that is that as in, enslaved people who are toiling, say, on a sugar estate in Louisiana, are being mortgaged to a bank, and that bank is pooling the value, uh, their market value, as an asset, and um, the state is issuing bonds. Uh, that uh, that represent that debt obligation, and those bonds are being sold in New York, in London, in Amsterdam, and other places. And these bonds in five hundred or thousand dollar denominations represent the value of one of those enslaved bodies. It's hard to deny that capitalism and slavery uh, that that have have um, you know are as antithetical as you know free and enslaved labor or go together like oil and water. Now that's not to say that you know the the kind of capitalism practiced by enslavers in the 1830s was you know the you know the most modern you know integrated uh, expression of this and uh, I I'm a very fond of this idea advanced by John Majewski 
who says that you can look at slavery's capitalism as one variety, and Sven Becker calls it war capitalism. Walter Johnson calls it slave labor, or sorry, slave racial capitalism. I call it capitalism. But Majewski says we can distinguish this from what you might call schumpeterian capitalism, that is, the kind of capitalism that leads to creative destruction, to innovation and entrepreneurship. And here's where this analysis links up with Carrie Lee Merritt's work and some others, which is to say that enslavers very deliberately shut off any alternative to the kind of cotton capitalism that was practiced in those areas of intensive cotton and sugar and maybe rice and tobacco cultivation um, by uh, trying to control the, the, you know, the white population as well as the, uh, the African-descended population. And that is to shut off avenues to, to, um, to diversification, economic diversification. And Majewski points to things like patent applications in schools, right? Markers of capitalist entrepreneurship to say, all right, well, yes, this was capitalism, but it's probably not the, the most um, entrepreneurial variety. And of course, the, those who are sitting at the top of the hierarchy could maybe, you know, sit back in their, you know, <laughs> finely upholstered chairs and say, who cares? You know, we're, we're, this is sustainable over generations. And it clearly was, it's based on violence. It clearly is. And, but yet it's the most profitable thing going. That is that you look at the top 1% uh, of the, the income brackets in the 1850s and they are Southern enslavers and the Northern bankers and shippers who serve them. And so there there's, I, I just, I find it very difficult to separate capitalism and slavery. I I'm, I couldn't have said it better myself, and and you know it's why they 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 got you uh they got you around here, man. Thank you so much for that. Um, because you know we were having this discussion uh in in uh in my foundational uh, uh PhD history course this semester or the last semester now. Um, you know we had a couple folks from the uh history of uh, capitalism class uh with dr horowitz and and i remember uh we we had uh we we read dr becker's book and uh it there it was a lively discussion shall we say i i'll leave it i'll i'll leave it at that um because you know it, that question of you know what like you said like you know war capitalism you know uh racial capitalism if you're talking about um, uh, Cedric Robinson, and and so there there are many different ways that people have articulated slavery. But it's interesting that you just said, "Well, well, well, damn! Like it's just capitalism to me, right?" So, so um, I, I really like that very, you know, very very uh, rather simplistic, but very much to the point um, kind of characterization. And also, I think this discussion also allows us to talk about how you incorporate the notion of the Civil War and, and the coming of the Civil War and also um, kind of like those roving 1850s. Like, I've, I've been very much interested now since I read, uh, doc, I had um, I had Dr. Matthew Karp on uh, last year for his great book, uh, This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Empire foreign policy and and thinking about you know the notion of um diplomacy and such specific to southern slavers but can you talk to us about you know how you think about you know the coming of the civil war and 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 those roving 1850s 
and the turmoil that brought about the Civil War. But that, because I think it also incorporates what you were just previously speaking about as far as, you know, capitalism and what that means, because in large ways, I'm sure that's very much in the mind frame of of those trying to secede. Yeah. So, right. This is uh, this is like the million dollar question in uh, American history. Right. What what caused the Civil War and how how did slavery cause the Civil War? Even Abraham Lincoln in 1865 in his second inaugural address said everyone knew that slavery. Well, he said the interest in slavery was somehow right. He quotes somehow the cause of the war. So um, I, I think that it's. It's in part um, American um, arrogance that neither side thought the other side was serious. In 18, you know, in 1857, uh, 1859, after John Brown's uh, unsuccessful raid on Harper's Ferry in the 1860 election, after the news of Lincoln's uh, putative election came to South Carolina, I mean, the Electoral College hadn't even met yet. These were the early returns. And the the, uh, the the secession convention said this guy's going to end slavery, and they said we're we're not going to wait until 1864 to test that hypothesis, and we're going to risk a lot of a lot of bloodshed, but we really really don't think it's going to happen. And on and they seceded, and they convinced you know the the lower South to secede, and four months later there's a civil war. And then the other side too, on you know the the union on the union side, the union took on the sacred significance that this was worth fighting for, this was worth dying for, and many soldiers and many politicians who didn't care very much about African descended people who thought slavery was somebody else's problem, uh, instead decided that they would shed a little bit of blood, and then they said they'd shed a lot of blood for this idea of a union. And so it was this idea, it was this unthinkable thing in 1859 or 1860 that by 1862 was so utterly um, you know unimaginable then that you know they they um, they couldn't believe it and then the, then the other kind of um, the, the uh, if you want to call it a, a silver thread or golden thread silver lining I think is the proper term which was that neither side could imagine that slavery would have ended, that chattel slavery um, as, a, as a, an institution of legal ownership of one American by another um, would have ended in such a dramatic faction, uh, fashion. Um, and so, yes, the, we know that slavery by another name survived, but the, the chattel slavery, the kind of um, buying and selling of people that occurred on such a grand scale before, you know, 1865 um, would have ended. So um, I hope I'm not waffling too much on this question, um, but it was the geopolitics of slavery. Yeah. So I think it was the, the geopolitics of slavery working through the political system and each side uh, and all, many, there are many more sides than just two, but everyone's working with uh, these these working misunderstandings and miscalculations of the other side. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so also, you know, I, I think about this question as well, when I think about how, um, how, you know, like you, like I've, I've thought about what you said as well a little bit recently um, when you said that both sides didn't take each other seriously enough, um, that it's almost to a certain degree a failure of the imagination that, you really are going to try to secede from from us because you know for better you know 
like it or not, folks, right, uh, the, the Confederacy was born out of the United States, right? So the American flag, for there to be a Confederate flag, you have to have a, you know, an American flag, right? Um, and then also look at, you know, where I live in, in Delaware, right? It's a border state. Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, Kansas, you know, th- actually now to think about it, three states I've actually lived in. I used to work and live uh, with the National Park Service in Kansas and in Kentucky, um, at uh, Fort Scott National Historic Site in Kentucky, in Fort Scott, or I'm sorry, Fort Scott, Kansas, rather, and then at Abe Lincoln Birthplace National Historical Park in Hodgenville, Kentucky. Shout out to my family out there. Um, and then obviously I go to school here in Delaware. Um, and so for me, like I think about, you know, how I think about how this country was really, uh, I think about how this country was founded, and I think about how this country really you know, in the second founding, right? Because, you, you know, you started with counter-revolutionaries and kind of how the nation was founded, but then you have the second founding um, after the Civil War. Yes, yeah, yeah, certainly. And this is the other, right, this is the, the other part of it too. It's, um, there is a second founding, but one of the things I emphasize in the book is that uh, the wh- whatever the verdict of the war was supposed to be in April of 1865 and May of 1865 when the Confederate armies surrendered. This was a, a verdict that wasn't that may have been briefly embraced by those people who fought, uh, but it was quickly abandoned by those people who decided that they could they could still hold out. And what I mean by that is that um, over the summer of 1865. Um, President Andrew Johnson all but forgives uh, the Confederacy, uh, forgives everybody but the the leaders, you know, the the, the high command, and and absolves the the, the rank and file uh, not only of of any sort of guilt for having, you know, borne arms against their country, um, but also for having fought in behalf of a, a, a systematic violent means of racial control. And so you have people coming back by the winter of 1865, even as they're, they're ratifying the 13th Amendment, who are forming the Ku Klux Klan, who are practicing racial terrorism, who are digging in their heels, and who are resisting what we call the second founding, who are saying that, you know, come hell or high water, I, I'm not going to accept the verdict of the war, the freedom verdict of the war. And that, I think, is a, a, a secondary tragedy to the initial loss of 750,000 lives, the displacement of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans, African-Americans, everyone else who was displaced by the war, the loss, the, the uh, you know, just the devastation of one region of a country and all the unintended consequences that, that came out of that. And we see this too in the the inability, and and here you know this involves a little bit of a historical judgment, um, the inability of the the Union of the victors to press the 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 press for the the completion of the second founding. That is, uh, after about 1873, when you have a financial panic and a depression, uh, the Grant administration and and Congress start to give up on the project of enforcing civil rights in the South. And uh, by the by, the next election by 1876, by the next presidential election, uh, you have Reconstruction and full retreat, and you have a regime of racial terrorism uh, that's that's endemic in most of what were, was the Southern Confederacy. 
And so this is this is why the the history has to go past 1865 into the supposed you know second second um, founding of the nation. And people like Frederick Douglass saw it with pretty clear eyes. You know, he said in 1865, in what new skin will the old snake emerge? Right. And by the 1880s, he, as a as a labor leader, he's he's weeping at the tragedy of the 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 missed opportunities uh, to complete the second American revolution and rightly so. And so the, the book ends on a, uh, on that tragic note by saying that this is not so much, um, this is, this is not so much a, a break with an old past, like the antebellum South is over. Yes. The antebellum South is dead and buried, but the, the, the racism that persists that the racism that has already seeped into the structures of the uh, of the economy that that has poisoned the society is reproduced in the in the reconstruction era it's going to metastasize into other forms of structural violence and systemic racism and this is a legacy as well so let's not think that you know those um, committed abolitionists and brave soldiers had the you know did away with slavery. And now we can, you know, like in our, in our survey courses, for those of us who, who teach these things to 1865 and since 1865 with a liberal uh, sprinkling of freedom rhetoric over it, um, have, have done away with the legacy of slavery. And, and with that as well, um, can you talk to us a bit about, uh, when it comes to, you know, now that the book is out there, the book is out to the world, you're discussing it with me, and it's about to be published to the to the whole entire world, right? All phenomenal things, right? But can you talk to me a bit about what was the biggest difficulty, looking back on it now, what was the biggest difficulty for you about writing this text? Yeah, so this is yeah maybe a, a good place to wind up on because the biggest difficulty is what to leave out, and and whom to leave out, and how and where where to begin the story and where to end the story, because the the story hasn't ended. Uh, the this the legacy of slavery is still with us, right? You know we all have heard that Faulkner quote that the the past isn't gone and it, it isn't even past, and then. We can go back to the colonial era and and look at the incremental violence that resulted in statutes and laws that construed slavery as um, being uh, as being passed down to the next generation through a maternal line, even though English law and custom favored everything else following a paternal line. Um, so we're, so the time the time constraints were very hard. And what what else is left out in the in the writing of this, um, things like medicine, um, the things that um, Professor uh, Barry talks about uh, in terms of age, um, the, the the process of aging and the process of of revaluing um, people according to those age grades, um, you know, th- things like the intimacy. I mean, I hint at it, and and I have some stories of. Um, you know, love and, and loss among people who are enslaved, but it doesn't do it justice. Uh, the landscape of sexual violence is a chapter, but they can't begin to, to probe the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the deeply textured history that stands behind many of these paragraphs and words and witnesses. So 
you know, this is why history is open-ended. This is why it's, it's the, that we're all revisionists in a sense, because there's so much more to write and there's so much more to, to delve into. And this was a book that, you know, contractually was only supposed to be about 250 pages and that's where it is. But, you know, the, it's, it's just a beginning. It's just the, the latest uh, iteration of an ongoing conversation that takes place in forums like this. So thank you for all the, all the wonderful questions and for, for having me on. Yeah, no problem. And, and if you don't mind, can I ask you one last, it's more of a fun question. Sure. So I always love asking these questions. If you had the opportunity to revive five people out of this historical text that you speak of, if you had the chance to have them for like a five course meal for like four hours to just sit down and break bread with them and ask them whatever question is on your mind, you had the opportunity to revive five people to ask them any questions that you want over the course of like a four to five course meal, who would those people be and why? My goodness. Um, so I, this is this is kind of an easy question because I'd start with Frederick Douglass and go quickly to, to Sojourner Truth and Harriet Jacobs, Harriet Tubman, and William Wells Brown. Um, and they wouldn't all get along, and they didn't all get along. Um, Frederick Douglass had a famous uh, disagreement with Sojourner Truth. Uh, but I think that the, the accumulation of their experience is uh, – I think points to a group of people who knew as much about America as any constellation of founding fathers because, because of their, what they had experienced, what they'd seen, what they'd thought and what they'd, and the, the kinds of activities and, and activism and, you know, intellectual productivity they'd engaged in. So here we have one of America's premier orators in Frederick Douglass, one of America's premier historians, in, in William Wells Brown, um, one of America's premier theologians in, in Sojourner Truth, one of America's premier um, spies and, and military expeditioners in Harriet Tubman, and one of America's premier authors in Harriet Jacobs. And so having them around a table to break bread, I think, um, would be phenomenal. And I'd want to record every syllable <laughs> of every word they had to say. Lord knows I definitely wish that I was a fly on the wall for that kind of conversation because, as you said, they didn't all necessarily get along. But but it, I, I loved how you said that they knew America as much as anybody. They knew they knew about, you know, the, the conscious of America as much as any person was to have ever lived within the bounds of what became this nation. Um and, and, and I really appreciate that. And, and, you know, in the last couple of seconds that we, we got for you, um, in the previous question, you had mentioned um, all the different contributions to the field. And, and I would just like to know, as I'm sure all of the uh, listening audience to New Books in African American Studies right now are having at the 50 minute and 47, 47 second mark, when can, wh- what can we look forward to uh, uh, in, in the scholarship for you? Professor, what, what, what's next for you after, after this book? I'm working on a book now called Disinherited, Dispossessed, and Decapitalized, colon, The Limits of Black Wealth in America, 1619 to 2019. And so it starts with, uh, the, it starts with the fact that um, African Americans 
uh, the median African-American family has one-tenth the income of, of white Americans. This is 50 years after the signal gains of the civil rights era, 150 years after emancipation. So it goes back and starts at the beginning with the first Angolan captives to arrive in Virginia in the, in the uh, 17th century and traces the limitations, that is the obstacles, to income, to wealth generation, to wealth accumulation, and the intergenerational transfer of wealth uh, across the generations. And so it breaks that up into three eras. The first one is disinheritances in the colonial era. That is the severing of the, the transmission of any wealth or advantage because of the, the institution of slavery um, kind of coalescing around this idea that you're cutting off one generation from the fruits of their parents' labors. And then this shifts to dispossession in the 19th century when enslavers rob African-descended people of their, their wages, their health, their families. And then it transforms too in the, in the 20th century to decapitalization. That is that the structural features of that dispossession get reshuffled and reorganized. And so it emerges to um, strip African-Americans of wealth. And so you look at um, the, the transition, say, from a manufacturing to a service economy. And the and and the the you think well okay so the old injustices are going to end and the new the new future is here and everyone's equal and everyone can start at the same starting line. This is not true. That as as some barriers fall, others rise. So credit becomes more expensive. Uh, bars to entry seem to fall away, but they're still there, right? Um, the Fair Housing Act fifty years ago didn't end unfair housing. And so this takes this 400-year history and tries to explain how it worked, how each generation, he, how each era um, sort of sees the reconfiguration of limits and, uh, and, and impediments to the intergenerational transfer of wealth and advantage. Uh, and it borrows um, very generously from stratification economics, um, Derek Hamilton, Sandy Darity, and others. Uh, it looks at sociology, it looks at genealogy and history, uh, some literature as well, um, incorporates the insights of people like Mirsa Baradaran, in, uh, whose, whose work on uh, the color of money, black banking and the racial wealth gap, uh, should be, you know, required reading. So that's, that's what to expect. It's still in the early stages. And uh, thank you for, for asking about what's coming up. Good. And, um, you know, thank you so much for for taking the time out. Um, it's the beginning of a semester uh, for, for, for most of us at this point. And so I know that, you know, with so many things that professors have to deal with, I'm always glad to, that they are able to take the time out to, uh, to, to chat with me about their, their, their new work. And um, I am just really, really excited for, for all the new work that you're incorporating and um, I'm, I'm very much in, in, interested in it because I'm interested in the question of, of uh, black capitalism in the, in the early American Republic and, and, and how that is um, a central organizing feature in a lot of uh, black periodicals and, and in just, you know, the color conventions uh, movement that I work with at the University of Delaware. And so I'm, I'm just so interested in this question. And I see that a lot of your work deals with that, too. So more more stuff to talk to uh, to you about uh, offline in the future so um once again folks we have had the esteemed opportunity to chat with dr calvin shermerhorn 
for his phenomenal book uh, published by our friends at Cambridge University Press entitled Unrequited Toil, A History of United States Slavery. I am your host of the channel, New Books in African American Studies, Adam McNeil, PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. And if you like the the discussion that you've just had, make sure to to go subscribe on all available uh, uh, Apple and and, and different podcasting applications that you can, because, hey, there's a lot more uh, interviews on the come up now. And so signing off from my studio here in Winter Park, Florida, Adam McNeil, New Books in African American Studies, over and out.